Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And June is Pride Month here in the U.S. And here at The Dirt, we dig pride. Woo! TM. So, this week, we're talking about some archaeological and anthropological viewpoints on queerness, gender identity, and sexuality throughout the human story. Yep, just going to jump right in. So I want to mention a study here that's really more within human genetics than anthropology, but those two studies are inextricable when we're talking about the human genome and trying to use it to explain human behavior, or in this case, show that there is no gay gene. I think this might still be a misconception that's kicking around, so I wanted to address that with a study published in the journal Science in 2019. Now, the report of this study is from Nature, the other one. <laughs> The other big one, which is very confusing for me. Wait, did like nature? Be. Did nature write about something in science? Yeah, like do they have like a? They have they, a like a popular science kind of bloggy right, type okay. page uh, where they were like, "This is cool," published in Science. Oh, okay. Perhaps this shouldn't confound me so much, but it's like, but it's the other one. Anyway, how about this study? The largest study to date on the genetic basis of sexuality has revealed five spots on the human genome that are linked to same-sex sexual behavior, but none of the markers are reliable enough to predict someone's sexuality. The findings are based on the genomes of nearly 500,000 people and shore up the results of earlier, smaller studies and confirm the suspicions of many scientists. While sexual preferences have a genetic component, no single gene has a large effect on sexual behaviors. Researchers also use the analysis to estimate that up to 25% of sexual behavior can be explained by genetics, with the rest influenced by environmental and cultural factors, a figure similar to the findings of smaller studies. Scientists have long thought that someone's genes partly influence their sexual orientation. Research from the 1990s showed that identical twins are more likely to share a sexual orientation than are fraternal twins or adopted siblings. That we call that the uh, Tegan and Sarah effect. <laughs> I got that one. <laughs> Some listeners will will note that this is going to be an episode where Anna will get my references. <laughs> yeah. Good job, me. Some studies suggested that a specific part of the X chromosome was associated with the sexual orientation of people who were biologically male, although subsequent research cast doubt on those results. The results demonstrate the complexity of human sexuality. Yeah. They also presented a challenge to the study researchers who knew that explaining nuanced findings on such a sensitive topic to the general public would be tricky. And this is really the reason why I kind of wanted to include this, because this is cool. To ensure that their results are not misinterpreted, the study researchers have worked with LGBTQ advocacy groups and science communication specialists on the best way to convey their findings in the research paper and to the public. This is what researchers yeah, should do. <laughs> I yell into the void. Their efforts included the design of a website. So you can go and it'll be in our show notes. It is geneticsexbehavior.info. And so the website lays out their results and the limitations of the results to the public using sensitive, jargon-free language. The website also clearly points out the limitations of this type of study. So like there is a whole tab, like a giant thing you can click that says, here's what this study can't do. So kudos to that team. Um, and so the takeaway is that some components of sexual preference are rooted in our genome, but environment and culture probably also play a big role in how a person identifies their sexuality and even their gender. And of course, culture is going to have a big input into that. Yeah, which is where I come in. <laughs> So, uh, so heterosexuality and homosexuality are not the only options on the queerness table, as I'm sure 
many of our listeners know firsthand. There are nearly infinite permutations of human gender expression and orientations along the axes of romantic and sexual attraction. But since orientation is a pretty intangible thing, how do we, you know, get at it? And so, get it. it. How do we get it? The first step is acknowledging that it's there at all, which brings us back to some fundamental flaws we inherit from our forebears in the discipline. Archaeology came into its own in the Victorian era, which relied heavily upon conservative, normative attitudes governing sexuality. The assumption was that the past was full of monogamous, heterosexual couples with clearly defined gender roles and that all sexual activity was pursuant to reproduction. As you might suspect... That assumption was true neither for the past nor for the Victorian archaeologist who was invested in the structures of polite 19th century society. Yeah, but it's so tidy. (laughs) But the fact that sexuality studies and archaeology grew up together results in a mutually informative or perhaps mutually disinformative, as the case may be, relationship. So I'm going to read a paragraph from Barbara Voss's review, Sexuality Studies and Archaeology, which I'll link in the show notes because it's like a really great introduction to the subject. The current wave of scholarship represents both a continuation of and a break from archaeology's long entanglement with sexuality studies. The formulation of modern concepts of sexuality has deep roots in the archaeological past. For example, the term pornography, literally whore writing, was coined in 1850 by German archaeologist C.O. Mueller to classify a diverse set of objects and images found at Pompeii. This archaeological term rapidly migrated into 19th century law through edicts such as the British Obscene Publications Act of 1857, which, wow, huh? Wow. Not too long ago. But also, like, the term pornography is an archaeological term. Oh, yes. Originally. Wow. Mm -hmm. We uh, we we get that one. Yay. J.J. <laughs> Yay. Winkelmann's 18th century studies of ancient art and John Simon's A Problem in Greek Ethics, 1901, were instrumental points of reference for sexologists who formulated current medico-psychological theories of sexual orientation. Other 19th century Europeans turned to Egyptology for countercultural models of sexual potency, bisexuality, gender ambiguity, and homoeroticism. Sigmund Freud, whose psychological theories located human subject formation in the struggle to resolve conflicting sexual drives, was an avid antiquities collector and made extensive use of archaeological terminology and metaphors. North America. Thank you. That's how I feel about that. North America's most prominent 20th century sexologist, Alfred Kenzie, also collected erotic artifacts and collaborated in Larko Hoyle's 1965 analysis of prehistoric Peruvian ceramics. Today, both advocates and opponents of homosexual and transgender human rights cite historic precedents as justification for their positions. As a result of these entanglements, there is no clear boundary between our modern sexualities and their ancient sexualities, because current understandings of our sexual selves have been formed in no small part through engagement with the archaeological record. Huh. Yeah, that's true. Right? Huh. So I think this is important to keep in mind as we spend the next however long talking about the subject. Sexuality is informed by social structures and pressures, and even what counts as sexual is defined differently throughout cultures and time, because it's all a matter of looking at sort of like boundaries and and relationships and and it is like various like interactions. So mm-hmm. just even like the sexual is something that is is in part so fluid constructed. Yep. Everything <laughs> is a continuum. And one of the goals of queer theory and archaeology, or even just calling it queer archaeology, is to try to divorce the past from the researcher's present in hopes of being able to come closer to understanding it on its own terms. It does this in a few different ways, all with the goal of destabilizing heteronormativity. Queer theory is here to remind us that the categories of sexuality and gender are unstable and defined by what they exclude. You have a normative, sort of more powerful position and it right. defines what isn't it. Right. These excluded identities or qualities did and do occupy landscapes dominated by the normative identities. So, you know, we out here. And, 
And I think this one is the most important. It reminds us that the past was not subject to a structure of dominant and marginalized identities identical to ours. Something that might be a marginalized identity today might not have been marginalized and, you know, might not like really might not have been an identity because it was sort of not something that would be categorized. So it's like very freeing. It's very liberating. Yeah. There Um, are some things that just are. Yeah. And so let's take a quick break and then get ready because as we'll see, not everyone has gotten this memo. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. All right. We went from educating takes on these identities to here's how we don't or shouldn't get at it. Okay. So this is a series of unfortunate takes regarding <laughs> a <laughs> a series of, a, yeah, the other Lemony like Snicket a, books. Yeah. Like about my twenties. <laughs> <laughs> a series of unfortunate takes. Yeah. <laughs> the Amber Zambelli story. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a shame because this is based on an archaeological story that came out in 2011. Um, and it's it's a really neat one. So it's a shame that news outlets, a couple that I'm going to throw under the bus in particular, slapped such misleading clickbaity headlines on it. So yeah, they they really uh, soiled the bed here. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> so okay, this story came out yeah, yeah in 2011, yeah, yeah. which is almost 10 years ago. Dear God, <laughs> and hopefully reporting on these topics has improved since. And we've found that it sort of has and sort of hasn't in a lot of ways. See our um, Kasimir Pulaski intersex Mm, episode mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for examples of that. But in any case, these kinds of treatments of stories like this say more about the writer's understanding or lack thereof of gender identity and representation than anything else. So I will now stop vague posting you. And here's the story. (laughs) Some people. (laughs) Here's okay. Here's the story. Archaeologists in the Czech Republic have unearthed the grave of what may be the remains of the oldest known homosexual or transgender man. The prehistoric body dates to the Copper Age, Calcolithic, which was between uh, 2,900 and 2,500 years ago in that region. Because remember, different ages came to different places at different times. The individual was determined by bioanthropologists to be biologically male, but was buried in a manner that was typically reserved for women on its side, facing east, and surrounded by domestic jugs. An oval, egg-shaped container, usually associated with female burials, was also found at the feet of the skeleton. There's some interpretive debate among the archaeologists who investigated the burial as to whether this was a burial based on how that individual identified, or whether they were being singled out for some other reason. So ABC News had this bad headline, Mostly because it's just very, ah! so it's the oldest known gay man. Subtitle, have archaeologists uncovered the remains of the first known gay man? <laughs> well, okay, I'm, okay, so um, that's bad. I mean, that's not even as bad as it gets, though, because. Oh, cool. Cool, cool, cool. The Telegraph 
takes home the dubious honor of worst take with just first homosexual caveman found. So first of all, like that's not even what I'm most offended by. The glaring clickbait aside, by the time the Calcolithic rolled around, folks weren't even living in caves in Europe I know, right? anymore. <laughs> like they, they were pretty much sedentary agriculturalists. So yeah, Telegraph, boo. 2011 Telegraph. I hope you've improved. But um, this just in. It hasn't. Nope. So, yeah, I'm funny. So the ABC News article redeems itself slightly, in my view, because it points that out. It does say, like, hey, they were in caves. It also does. It does. There's a paragraph where it's like, by the time this happened. People did talk not about, live in caves. Talk about like the long arc of, of history, like bending towards justice. It's just like the slightest mm. nudge. Like, no, no caves, but death okay. Did you see those <laughs> jugs? <laughs> um, okay, so it also does report the story with a little nuance, despite the bad headline. Um, so I will. I am reporting from that report. <laughs> Quote, Bettina Arnold, a professor of anthropology at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, is cited as saying that homosexuality, as Westerners think of it today, comes with a lot of added societal baggage that wouldn't resonate at all with prehistoric man. She points to examples of, quote, gender transformers across most ancient societies. Some Native American tribes, for example, have room for as many as seven different genders. And so Arnold said, Quote, men in many cultures throughout history have occupied a sort of liminal space between the two sexes. They would dress and act like women, but that behavior would have no bearing on their sexual orientation or who they slept with. These third gender people were sometimes even accorded special spiritual or shaman status in their societies. And she goes on to say, quote, this is not an uncommon phenomenon in prehistoric cemetery populations. It's always there, but in small percentages, end quote. There were more takes on this story when it came out by other mainstream news outlets, more or less equally shouty and inaccurate. But Live Science was not brooking any nonsense and released an article that should have just been titled, Calm Down Everyone. Instead, <laughs> it was more judiciously titled, quote, Gay Caveman Story Overblown, Archaeologists Say. <laughs> Live Science says... Media claims of a gay caveman may be exaggerated, according to some researchers. The culture the man belonged to, known as the corded ware culture for their pottery decorated with the impressions of twisted cord, was very finicky about grave rituals, reported Iranian news network Press TV, which visited the excavation site. According to the Czech news website Czeskapozice.cz, corded ware males were usually buried on their right sides with their heads facing east. This man, however, was buried on his left with his head facing west, a traditionally female position. The article characterizes the skeleton as male and uses male pronouns, you'll notice. And to be honest, if I were tasked with writing this article, I'm really not sure what I would have done in this case either. The skeleton has been trumpeted in the media as belonging to a homosexual caveman, but some archaeologists are skeptical. Christina Kilgrove, an anthropologist at the University of North Carolina, wrote in her blog Bone Girl, which we will link to on the show notes, that for one thing, the complexity of the third gender concept makes calling the skeleton gay an oversimplification. And Kilgrove wrote, quote, If this burial represents a transgendered individual, as well it could, that doesn't necessarily mean the person had a different sexual orientation, and certainly doesn't mean that he would have considered himself or that his culture would have considered him homosexual. Also, so, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't necessarily have considered that person like transgender because no it could it's, we it's have not no like a, idea what their definitions well, no, like, were like yeah because like even if that person has a skeleton that we would sex as biologically male that in no it's way means definitive. that like yeah. they were assigned a gender at birth that then right they they later like realized like wasn't that's not theirs. right like yeah, yeah. like I mean, I know that this, like, keeps bringing me back to, like, my my whole, like, it's the past, like, sort of thing. But it, it's it is the past and you it's, can't know. It's something, to, it's something to think about. Like, just an, another, like, here to, like, throw some, like, you know, queer theory of, like, even thinking about somebody being 
like there isn't necessarily any anything like transgressive or like trans anything inherently. Yeah. So, but yes, <clears throat> speak and also <laughs> just like and and no like man wrong about like. <laughs> Wrong about the gay, wrong about the caveman. <laughs> wrong about the gay, wrong about the cave, wrong about the man. Like, it's just, like, unknowable. Oh for three. Yeah, I know. <laughs> nerp, so. nerp, and nerp. <laughs> uh, speaking of people who may or may not have been considered homosexual by themselves or their culture... Da, da, da. You, we all know what that means. It's time to talk about Alexander the Great. Yes. Anna, have you seen Oliver Stone's 2004 cinematic opus, Alexander? I have not, but I see from you the have... photo you posted that they used Engelbert Humperdinck's wig for it. So, it's, so okay. Um, it Colin is, Farrell, what are you doing, it is, sir? It is, a, like, it is a like heinously bad movie that... Um, it looks it, just from this photo. I know. It's a like, I've... I remember the production value being greater in like 2006, but maybe like, you know, inflation. Am I right? Um, but I just that hair. Like, is I know, this a high hair, school production? The hair, the, the, you know, it is tough. That at is a tough his eyebrows. I, it's <laughs> hard feel, to look at. I feel like you're missing the forest for the wig here. Um, because, so the thing about Alexander, the movie, the thing that made this movie like so like <gasps> um, was that it um, so over the course of the story, you you see that Alexander played by Colin Farrell um, and like you see his relationship being a, a sexual or romantic one with Hephaestion, who is played by Jared Leto. As we see on the right of this image, in the middle I is, that. is Jonathan Rhys Myers, who played oh, uh, who played Cassander. That's who that is. And that um, what you may hair. be also getting from this stock image that I'm sh- this like <laughs> this image that I'm showing you, you may like yeah. hear the Irish accent coming off of that image. Um, I, because uh, yep, everyone like everyone was Irish, and it was like. A, an in Macedonia, yes, it was. Well, it was an intentional choice because, because like, it's kind of a, like if Macedonia is to Greece as Irish English is to, see. yeah, other English, yeah, yeah, like huh. yeah, Ireland is to like England and sort of like that empire. Um, well, right, I could see where right? the someone thought like, yeah, this, I'm brilliant. <laughs> Yeah, and so the um, the film didn't do great critically. What in 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 the U.S. and Oliver Stone is like on record being like, oh, it's because like the U.S. is like so like puritanical and like homophobic that they like couldn't handle seeing Alexander in a relationship with a man. Um, well, and so two thousand four. But also, it was a bad movie. Like, that's, yeah, yeah, I know. I'm saying that's, that, like, that's that's sort of like what the U.S. had to say in response was like, that's not why we hated it. <laughs> this is just the most well, it's not the most recent, but this was this was like the most recent version of an instance of um, Alexander being like his his sexuality being questioned or claimed or ascribed, and um, that's something that's like been happening a lot. And so that's something that Professor Lloyd Llewellyn Jones at, you guessed it, the University of Cardiff. What? Um, With all those L's? How? <laughs> and also on his faculty profile, there's a little like CY thing that says like the little icon. It was like, speaks Welsh. And I was like, I figured. I bet you do, sir. <laughs> yeah. um, and so Lloyd Llewellyn Jones, <laughs> he tackled this last year during UK Pride Month, which is in January. Sure. It's not June. It's in not June. Um, uh-huh. With um, a a blog post and then a lecture that he delivered called Alexander the Great or Alexander the Gay, in which he explored the phenomenon whereby Alexander of Macedon has been embraced with wide open arms as a gay icon in the 20th century through today. So 
Llewellyn Jones is uniquely poised to have a take on this subject, as he was a historical consultant for Alexander. <laughs> and, um, and so he advised on costume and production because he um, his specialty is in um, he, he's done a lot of work on sort of how like Hollywood informs our perceptions of antiquity. And then he's also done a lot of stuff in terms of like uh, material culture and like dress and, and sort of presentation in um, sort of elite or Royal contexts in this period. So like, Mm -hmm. he's a guy you'd ask, but don't worry. Don't, don't you dare worry for a second that it held him back from criticizing it because I (laughs) fell down a rabbit hole of his work about Alexander (laughs) And like how how orientalist it is because like it it's a bad movie um and and it's also (laughs) it it is like it's a really good example of um like orientalism like it pulls from a lot of like it actually pulls images from a lot of like orientalist painting from the 19th century Mm. Uh, and um and it's just it's it's like problematic with a capital p but okay but i so i'm going to i'm going to include in the show notes a link to his cv so you can like dig up some of this stuff because oh my god it's so good i like him <laughs> so he and sounds so while, fun. <laughs> yeah he does so fun um and while we're on the topic of that awful just awful movie um, <laughs> here's <laughs> should we do that for 100th i don't want to, never mind i don't want to watch this grown up alexander is advised by like Ptolemy, old mm-hmm. Ptolemy. And there's this scene. I can't actually I can't remember which of those two like old dudes in a in like a toga like that they it's have. Fine. Don't worry um, about it. There's a map where he like shows like a map of the world and it's basically being like, you're gonna conquer this. But they have it like written out, they have the letters written out, and there is a they spell it out in like fake Greek letters. So it's not in Greek letters. It like they, there's like a sigma. Wingdings. No, no, no. It's, you know, how it's like how like a TikTok teen like spells her name, like Courtney with like the E being a capital sigma, like sort oh, of thing where it's that, like not that, the oh, same bad. letter. That's not good. And so they, it was like that, but it was in mosaic and it was so good. dumb. And like, that was like, I feel like it was like five minutes in. Who puts in, a map was, like, in mosaic? You I put mean, a map was, like on a, on a, surface right you know anna you're sounding a lot like a puritanical person who can't handle a homosexual relationship in a movie cannot (laughs) can't stand to see them so but i want to give you one more example (laughs) of how mad well no not how mad how invested people are in alexander's sexuality specifically uh-huh. be mad so right before the movie came out a um a group of 25 greek lawyers like from greece threatened a lawsuit against stone <laughs> and like warner brothers <laughs> yeah <laughs> and um the the head lawyer um Giannis vernakos is quoted saying we are not saying that we are against gays but we are saying that but... the production company should make it clear to the audience that this film is pure fiction and not a true depiction of the life of alexander he wasn't um, gay end quote <laughs> and um and so uh, they they got to see the movie they like uh-huh. i guess they sat all 25 of them down in a theater and then they watched it and they're like yeah, never mind <laughs> <laughs> um so um i mean either they were just like completely won over by the the pure pure like physical power of jared leto um or hey hey, sure who who are we (laughs) (laughs) but before we barrel on i want to take a brief moment to talk about someone else from the greek world that has been claimed by the queer canon this time for myth which also alexander's like semi-mythical because his mother his mother's family like claimed ancestry from achilles and then alexander was kind of kind of deified later yeah like with that sweet hair that you saw above that sweet hair is like part of his like look i know with like the little to be honest it looks better on the on the statues I, it does look like they they like they just at, trans yeah they transformed <laughs> the stone marble mop of hair on Alexander's yeah. head and they were like make me that but hair yeah. and they're like oh perfection <laughs> and, <laughs> chef kiss 
Um, yeah. So this time we're gonna we're gonna look uh, look a little bit at classical myth. So. In classical mythology, the goddesses Athena, Artemis, and Hestia are three daughters of Zeus, the king of the pantheon, um, and they govern critical aspects of life, including warfare, hunting, and household management, respectively. None of them have spouses or lovers or anything like that, but they are indispensable in the construction of Greek reality. And so perhaps it's been easy to overlook their like, nah, I'm good approach to sexuality, since there are plenty of examples of women presented as virgins (laughs) in classical myth, because the Greek society was like, not great about ladies. No, that is true. (laughs) That's that's me. I'm just going to smooth that over let's, with that. Let's just <laughs> stroll on by that for now. Yeah. We don't have the time. We don't have time. But so there and lots of women are like presented as as virginal. Virgin. So like like pal like palas means maiden, which mm-hmm. also just means like unmarried woman. You see lots of examples of them in classical myth, but there's only one male virgin. And that's Hippolytus. And it is in Hippolytus that we find an ace icon. And by ace, you mean, just for the asexual. folks at home. Yes, yes. yes so we've got Athena, Artemis, and Hestia are often are often claimed by the, the asexual canon. But it's like sort of, they're easier for sort of the less inclined to believe that to sort of smooth, like brush away. Yeah, yeah. But but Hippolytus is very different because he was the son of King Theseus and Hippolyta, the queen of the Amazons. This is myth. Um, he was a devotee of Artemis and spent his days kicking it in the woods, hunting and communing with his favorite goddess, being like, I really feel like you get me, Artemis. And like he just was like doing him. And yeah, so in, in the tragedy. Yeah, in the tragedy by Euripides, we meet him as he's just doing him. And we see how this goes awry for Hippolytus when Aphrodite, who's the goddess of erotic love, is sick of him snubbing her. Like, like she's not like she's not jealous of of Artemis. She's just mad at him because he's not giving her what's hers. Like he's not giving, he's not making offerings to her, he's not worshiping her, he's not sort of engaging any in anything that she reps. Like she's right. she's sick of it. She feels and left so, out, and she doesn't she doesn't like it. Yeah, and so when he again refuses to her, like when he again refuses to give her the time of day, Aphrodite sets a chain of events in motion that will end well, tragically. Yeah, it's not because it for is him. a tragedy. No, not great for him. It's not great for anyone. Actually, everybody loses in Greek tragedy. Um, but do not let that get in the way of the fact that in the Greek world there existed spaces for asexuality too, which is something that often gets overlooked in conversations about sexualities. Yes, indeed. And and so they may have taken SpongeBob SquarePants from us. <laughs> I'm still mad about this, Anna. I'm, but- no, I'm mad like biologically, like as a as someone who <laughs> as a science based person, like I, I'm also mad like on behalf of my friend. But <laughs> but also like sponges are asexual. And like, that's how they are. (laughs) That's how they work. Um, And so, um, that's what they do. They bud. uh, I'm going to give this aside before I finish my joke. Uh, I I was looking into this and I kept, (laughs) I was was using keywords like asexuality, ancient society, asexuality, past. (laughs) And I kept like, and there was something about like ancient asexuality scandal or something. And it was something about like, Something in like the primordial ooze. And I was just like, what? <laughs> it's it's not, I, uh, <laughs> it was like what? some like deep paleontology. And I was just like, oh, is this scandalous? And so I just was like very confused and a little oh, off put. But <laughs> some stromatolite somewhere reading a tabloid, like, <gasps> I know. And I was just like, <laughs> like I tried, I read the abstract and I was like, is this a scandal? <laughs> is that how that works? But they may have taken SpongeBob from us, but they can never take away Hippolytus. No, and they never shall. No. Let's have an ad. Let's have one. <laughs> Thank you. 
This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop, and click on the link. Okay, let's talk lesbians <laughs> but first let's uh, talk let's talk this title yes <laughs> mm. uh this is a blog post and it's entitled sophistry on the spoil heap colon lesbianism and female homosociality in early archaeology it's good it's good it's good that's good i like yeah. that <laughs> so this is a blog post by mara gold who now i haven't um gone further into this because it seemed invasive but as of 2018 <laughs> she was a graduate student in classical languages and literature based at st hilda's college oxford in this piece she examines the role of gender in women's professionalism during the development of archaeology as a discipline and how female homosociality and lesbian relationships helped to increase opportunities for women in the field um and i excerpted from this. This is not the full article, but we will have a link to the full post on the show notes. So, quote, despite the misconception that archaeology is a masculine profession, women played a leading role in the development of the discipline during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. See our chat about trailblazers with Brenna Hassett. Yeah. Last episode. This was in part due to the rise in women's rights and, relatedly, the growth of the female workforce during this period. As archaeology was an emerging discipline, it was easier for women to make their mark rather than in established male-dominated disciplines such as ancient languages. <laughs> Homosociality. Like, Do you I'm need so, a moment I'm, to I'm, scream I'm and just, rage? I'm just laughing about, like, you know, like men's work. Philology. You know. You gotta go men. out and... <laughs> it's like you, that pocky for men. Man pocky. The... <laughs> Are you, you know what you know what pocky is, right? I know what pocky it's the, is. The little what? chocolate dipped Japanese biscuits. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. There, there's man pocky. It comes in this like you know very uh, hunter green yeah. color box, and it's dark, intense chocolate that might disrupt ladies' internal I just, functions. I guess I don't know. I, um, but yeah, man pocky. It's really good though. So my <laughs> internal functions are fine. In case you're wondering. So where was I? Homosociality a term originally coined by Eve Sedgwick to describe the gender-segregated spheres of the Victorian era and also used uh, in the Dollop podcast to describe pirates. They, they spend like 10 minutes asking the audience what that means. Um, <laughs> played a substantial role in allowing women to pursue a career in archaeology. Despite the many restrictions placed upon women during this period, they were able to travel in pairs or groups of women with relative ease and, in a professional sense, to put together teams of women for fieldwork. Many British women archaeologists appear to be all too aware of being labeled masculine as a result of their work. Whilst some seem to relish blurring gender boundaries through their work, others felt a need to explicitly prove their femininity. Foreign and uncivilized terrains put normative femininity under duress, not under dress, although also yes, mm. which many travelers responded to by eschewing sessile or static femininity for mobile masculinity in order to perform their traveling identity. <laughs> While I was reading and, and adding this to the script, all I could think was like, Judith Butler! Yeah, um, well, the, the 1990 book Gender Trouble. Indeed. I wrote something that Judith Butler described as masterful. Wow! My name wasn't on it, and I didn't get credit for it, but I want everyone to know. Yeah, hear that, <laughs> everybody? I, I used to, because I... Judith, um, you listening? Judith Butler and I have some colleagues in common. 
I don't know how to put that on my CV, but it's out there. One's called Masterful, Masterful by Ju- Judith Butler. Um, <laughs> however, unlike travelers whose traveling identities were temporary, archaeologists could not just change costumes upon their return. They would always be archaeologists. Therefore, they were able to combine elements of masculinity and femininity to reflect the dual and often conflicting aspects of their lives and careers. In France, archaeologists such as Jane Dielafoy were given special dispensation to wear trousers, a practice which was, at the time, illegal for women. Which, like, just take a second. Yeah. Think about everything, all the structures that inform that sentence. Hey, you like pants? Too bad. You only have one pant leg, but it's really wide. Both your legs go in it. One of the most fascinating and openly lesbian archaeologists was an Egyptologist called Margaret Benson, born in 1865. Benson came from a prestigious family. Her father, Edward White Benson, was the Archbishop of Canterbury. Wait, if he's the Archbishop, he's allowed to be a dad? Yeah, because it's not Catholic. Right. Right. (laughs) Anglican. I don't know why I said it like that, but like it was completely unintentional that I said Catholic like that. Her (laughs) uncle, Henry Sidgwick, was the founder of Newnham College, Cambridge, and her brother, gay writer E.F. Benson, famously wrote the Map and Lucia novels in 1920. 1939. Famous, not to me, but sure. Were the stories gay? I do not know. Should have looked. Listeners, go ahead and look Look those up. up. We're not a literature podcast. (laughs) Clearly. Her mother, Mary, and sister, Eleanor, were also queer, and both daughters fell out with their mother due to the fact that they had lesbian relationships, or swarmings, as Mary put it, with some of the same women, which sounds like the most nightmare. I can't. Maybe I can't. that's what gay writer E.F. Benson's books were about. Just write what you know, I guess. Write what Yikes. you see. Mm. Benson also wrote extensively about cats and eventually <laughs> published a book called The Soul of a Cat, a Lesbian Bible. Stereotypes firmly in place. Great, great, great. This is looking at how look, see above with um, queer theory of that normative identities are constructed negatively so they're constructed by saying who isn't them so these these women were able to by um adopting like practices and expressions and and performing a masculine gender they were permitted to enter what had been a gendered space i talk about this in my own book wow yeah (laughs) because it hasn't in some ways it hasn't changed no in a lot yeah Mm. Uh, but, Anna, yes, t- take me now to Han Dynasty China, where the neighborhood's sweater weather must have been an extremely popular song. Uh, I got that one, everyone. <laughs> just, just so you know. All right, for one more example of the ubiquity of alternative sexualities in history, this is from a JSTOR Daily article written this year, 2020, by Sarah Prager. Quote, In the last years BCE, Emperor Ai was enjoying a daytime nap. He was in his palace in Chang'an, which is now Xi'an, China, hundreds of miles inland, not sure why that's relevant, wearing a traditional long-sleeved robe. It's relevant to the song, remember? Right. Lying on one of his sleeves was a young man in his 20s, Dongxian, also asleep. So tender was the emperor's love for this man that when he had to get up, instead of waking his lover, he cut off the sleeve of his robe, which we've talked about this before. Do you remember this story? Yeah. Yeah. We uh, talked about uh, it when we talked about kitties. Yeah. The prophet Muhammad was like, Aw. yeah, kitty. Unclear whether this is an adaptation of that same story or whether just people and cats I like, mean, like falling asleep it, on sleeves, I guess. Also, I was there for like the trumpet sleeves. Yeah, the, it's the true. early nobbies. They do get in the way. The story of the cut sleeves spread throughout the court, leading the emperor's courtiers to cut one of their own sleeves as tribute. Have one chilly elbow. The tale's influence outlived its time, producing the Chinese term, the passion of the cut sleeve, a euphemism for intimacy between two men. Emperor Ai was far from the only Chinese emperor to take a male companion openly. In fact, a majority of the emperors of the Western Han Dynasty, which was around from 206 BCE to 220 CE, had both male companions and wives. The historian Brett Hinch asserts in Passions of the Cut Sleeve, the male homosexual tradition in China, that all ten emperors who ruled over the first two centuries of the Han Dynasty were 
openly bisexual, with I being the tenth. They each had a, quote, male favorite, who is listed in the records of the Grand Historian, or the Shiji, and the Book of Han, the Hanshu. Sima Qian, the author of the Shiji, who also wrote the biographies of the emperor's male favorites, continues, as quoted by Hinch, quote, It is not women alone who can use their looks to attract the eyes of the ruler. Courtiers and eunuchs can play that game as well. Many were the men of ancient times who gained favor this way. Emperor Gao favored Jiru. Emperor Hui favored Hongru, Emperor Jing, Zhu Ren, and Emperor Zhao, Jinsheng. These rulers were also married to women, but their male companions were important parts of their lives as well. Thanks to detailed records that have survived two millennia, we know that these favorites received great privilege and power in exchange for their intimacy. There's almost no recorded information about relationships between women in China at this time, but there are fragments that seem to hint that at least elite women might also sometimes have had same-sex partners while being married to male partners. Which sort of speaks also to um, issues of like power, there being a um, differential of power in the relationships. Like seeking favor versus being in the position to bestow favor. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so it's something that can that like further muddies relationships and our ability to understand them because like there are other um, other societal factors at play. Like, was it was it common for like everyone or was it common for people who were in a position of power and wealth who were attractive and that that could that could attract yeah yeah which like i i I Mm. it's just interesting to think about yeah it is it is interesting to think about and so let's in the spirit of thinking about things let's wrap up with a little bit of a roundup of past queer topics that we've discussed on the dirt either in our main weekly episodes or in some of our monthly patreon episodes so we've got a Remember, Anna, back in old news, when we uh, talked about everybody having a hissy fit about the lovers of Modena? Yes. Modena. Uh, excellent know, balsamic Medina, vinegar. Like, like, like funky it is called the, Medina. That's, <laughs> that's what I said. What? Uh, no, you don't. Huh? Balsamic uh, like, vinegar. That's Medina's I know, thing. I know. But I said, I said Medina, like the Tone Loke song. Funky cold Medina. <laughs> oh, like I pronounced it wrong. <laughs> oh yeah, it's embarrassing. It's, it's Modena. Embarrassing. Okay, it's okay. Anyway, we did talk about it because after a long time of thinking that, so there were these two skeletons, right? Okay, <laughs> two skeletons walk into a walk into a bar. Yeah, I was trying to think of an actual punchline to a joke that would start that way, but I got nothing. Two skeletons walk into a bar, and the bartender says. Why are you here? Because it's ladies' night. It's weird because they are both men. Thank uh, you. And that's, <sighs> that's why everyone was having a hissy fit because these two skeletons who were buried together, well, found buried together, um, clasping each other in what was perceived as a romantic way, uh, were discovered to both be biologically male. And people all of a sudden were like, well, then they're not lovers. Maybe they're cousins or best friends. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Which, yeah, it's a bit of a like, what if I told you? Guess what? All of that could be wrong. <laughs> um, yeah, over on Dirt After Dark, we had a conversation about the Moche Sex Pots, which is a collection of uh, pots that have it's in, it's in that are illustrated Museum. with the Lima Museum that are um, illustrated with rather explicit no, figures. Non, yeah, like non non normative, not heteronormative sexual acts. So we yes. talked about that. Um, on episode 41 of this here humble pod, we talked about Casimir Pulaski in the context of looking at intersex. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, very so, proud of that episode. I love that episode. Um, yeah. And then on another Dirt After Dark episode, <laughs> Dirt After Dark, colon, butts, um, we talked about the Warren Cup, which I started out very fun. differently. <laughs> <laughs> and it, and so the Warren Cup is a um, a, a silver cup that is. It's in the um, British Museum. It's in the British Museum. It's 
It's gorgeous. And, and it's in room both, 70. I remember that. <laughs> and on, on both sides of it, there are very like realistic scenes um, that are in a bedroom setting where there are two pairs of, of men. And um, yeah, it's really beautiful. And it turns out the person who owned it was a terrible person. Um, yep. That's a bummer. But yeah, that, that story started out like, oh, interesting. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So that was, <laughs> Sometimes you just, it, it just I turns have, out like that. I, I have a, a, a real penchant for finding things like that. Um, you are, yeah, so, you have spidey sense, but. But for bummers. Yeah. Um, Mm. You know, this is something that we we don't talk about not often, and it's right. something that we will talk about in the future. But I thought, yeah, I, I'm glad that we had this very special, a very special episode. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for listening, everybody. And happy Pride. Whoever you are, however you live your life, we see you and we love you. And we'll be back in your ears soon with new content. And you can find us on social media. And on Facebook, we're at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. And if you want to, we love hearing from you. And you can contact us with questions or thoughts at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. And all of that, all of that, and all of our old episodes and links to our to episodes in our back catalog before we joined the APN all of that is available on our website at thedirtpod.com. And if you're listening to this, dear listener, it's our second birthday. We're two. Yeah. Oh, we're that's two. right. That's when this comes out. Yeah. We're a toddler. Ah, oh, we're terrible. We don't even have patellas. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> Babies don't yeah. have kneecaps. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us for the these yes. two years. Ah, it's just like, wow. I'm just getting a little lightheaded. Um, yeah. So <laughs> if you survived our like terrible improv from a few minutes ago, <laughs> please keep the part about the, the lovers of Modena and the terrible joke. That we, like <laughs> Speaking of not having kneecaps, <laughs> that joke. We that really, joke didn't like, have a leg to stand on. Ah. <laughs> uh, Mm, really hobbled our flow there but yeah so we're coming up on 100 episodes here soon and we are going <gasps> to do something for it we are it's in the works don't you worry uh we will announce it's, it very soon really, on social media it's in the reworks thanks yeah to it's in the try again our real friend hard. COVID. thank you everyone for listening and we'll be with you again soon goodbye goodbye This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.